All right, hi everybody. Um, let's get started. We're gonna talk about delegation today. And um, I realized I forgot my notes in the car, so I'm gonna have to work off the computer, which may somewhat tame my pacing, but I doubt it'll stop me from pacing all that much. Um, before we do that though, I did want to um, start highlighting when admin law issues come up in the news because they come up regularly and you may not even necessarily have spotted them as admin law issues uh, you know previously and certainly you wouldn't have a couple of years ago but um, I was reading the paper this morning and I saw this issue um, where you have the uh, Danny 410 the, the military official who had been in charge of vaccine rollout and was dismissed from that position and sought to have his role reinstated, um, not through the ordinary employment law approaches, but through judicial review. And what happened was the application for judicial review was dismissed uh, on a summary basis on the basis that he had not exhausted his alternative remedies. Specifically, the court noted that there were internal, or an internal mechanism within the legislative scheme that would have allowed him to challenge his dismissal without taking the leap to go to a judicial review. So again, this gets at that point we talked about towards the beginning of the class, that judicial review is discretionary, right? And one of the reasons that a judge may choose to not exercise their discretion is that there is an alternative remedy within the administrative scheme itself. You don't have to go outside the administrative scheme to invoke the you know, extraordinary supervisory jurisdiction of the courts and judicial review. If the statutory scheme already says, hey, if you've got a problem here, come up to this level, argue it there, and then we can, you know, perhaps see a judicial review coming only in the case that that doesn't get you the remedy that you need. Um, and so the, the reasons, um, Sorry, just one second. Um, the reasons of Justice McDonald of the uh, federal court conclude with a, a nice passage that is right on this point, and she says, as stated by the Supreme Court of Canada, while courts have the discretion to hear an application for a judicial review prior to the completion of the administrative process and the exhaustion of appeal mechanisms, they should exercise restraint before doing so. So again, she situates it squarely within discretion. Um, can a court hear a judicial review from a uh, lower level decision within an administrative scheme that has an internal appeal mechanism? Can they? Yes. But should they? That's the question. And whenever you think it's not can, but it should, a word should come to mind. Justiciability is what we're talking about then. And she says, this is a case where I conclude it is appropriate for the court to exercise restraint. Major General Fortin must exhaust the internal grievance process prior to seeking a remedy in this court. 
So that principle that we talked about, um, the discretionary nature of judicial review, and one of the reasons a court may choose to not exercise their discretion being that there is an internal mechanism that might address the situation substantively without invoking the court's supervisory jurisdiction, came to bear here in a way that, um, you know, is on the second page of the newspaper today. Uh, so I'll try to keep highlighting instances where admin law intersects with the news. Uh, if you come across one, um, you know, feel free to send it my way. I'd, I'd be very interested in seeing that. All right. Just a minor point. So today we want to talk, or we're going to talk about delegation. And I want to cover delegation in sort of three chunks. The first chunk being the textbook chapter, which I think does a, a very good job of not just explaining you know, what delegation is and where the court might find that a delegated um, rulemaking authority or guideline making authority has been exceeded, but also explains why things are delegated, uh, who things are delegated to, and the import of that choice on the legislature's accomplishment of its aims. Um, some counter arguments for why delegation may not be appropriate in all circumstances. And I think a very interesting discussion about the idea of public consultation and how that has its benefits, but also potentially its drawbacks. So um, I think an interesting way to leap into this issue is through looking at the textbook chapter. I apologize for being so late in putting up the case that I put up yesterday. I hope you had a chance to glance through it. The highlighted portion is not that long. And in fact, the point I want to draw, the um, the test, as explained in that case, is really quite concise. So um, I want to use that case as an illustration of how the court generally goes about considering these challenges to a delegated uh, regulation that has been passed pursuant to a regulation-making power. And then I finally want to talk about an issue that there's no reading on and that I don't want to give outsized importance to because it really is more of a constitutional law problem than a pure administrative law problem. And you probably dealt with it, uh, maybe not extensively, but I'm sure at least a little bit in your constitutional law course. And that is the limits on the legislature's ability to delegate when what they would be giving to the executive is a judicial function that the courts will say must be exercised by a Section 96 Superior Court, Section 96 of the Constitution Act 1867. Didn't want to give you a reading on that, but I do want to talk about it today at the end of the lecture because it, um, it bears on this question of uh, what can be delegated. And in fact, if we're thinking back to our, our sort of three branches of government or separation of powers chart, that section 96 courts issue is not a constraint on the executive. It's a constraint on the legislature, right? It's the legislature not being able to exceed its constitutional limits, which includes respecting the basic structure of the Constitution, which presupposes and assumes the continued existence of section 
96 superior chords. So that's probably the structure in three parts. Um, and so I'll get into it starting with the um, a discussion of the book chapter, which I think is a rather good one, a rather well-written book chapter. I just found out, I got an email from the publisher today saying, hey, we got a new Minlaw in context, fourth edition, out next week. And I was like, ah, so close. Um, but, you know, that's fine. Um, this issue certainly hasn't changed in any significant way post-Babylon. And I actually am, to say, which I sort of go off on a tangent, I am a little bit uh, excited that we get to read the pre-Vavilov discussion of Dunsmuir and sort of the expectations of problems and what's coming next that's in the chapter I assigned for Friday because I do think you can't understand what Vavilov is and what its approach really signifies without knowing how we got there. And to read something that's almost like a historical document now, uh, you know, a discussion of the Minlaw pre-Vavilov, I think will set the stage very well for our discussion on Wednesday next, indeed, of Babylon. So let's get into um, delegation. Fundamentally, we want to know when, why, and to what extent decisions or issues can be delegated and to whom. And we spoke at the outset of the course about the sort of history of admin tribunals being uh, controversial and, and being limited in their uh, usage initially. And the notion that thought a sort of jurisdiction to decide these issues rests with parliament, um, the ministers perhaps on some level, and they're the ones to be deciding these issues. And in recent years, or certainly the last 40, 50 years, call that recent, I suppose, the legislature has seemed almost um, overwhelmed by the, by the temptation to delegate more and more things directly to boards and tribunals for determination, um, as opposed to keeping things more squarely within the legislative framework. And part of that is just in the creation of these boards and tribunals. But the part that I want to talk about today is in saying to the boards and tribunals, not only do you have the jurisdiction in this subject matter to apply the law and to interpret the law that we are passing, but you're going to have a significant hand in shaping that law because we are going to give you the power to make regulations that are going to have substantive impact on how this law comes to bear on the people who are governed by it. And we're going to further give you the power to make regulations that are going to dictate the procedure when somebody has an issue with you know, this area of law. And certainly, the choices that you make about procedure go a long way to influencing how these substantive rights are realized in practice. And who has access to the substantive uh, remedies. So this delegation, you know, at its highest level is just, there will be a residential tenancy branch that will adjudicate landlord tenant disputes. But at its next level is, and in the context of adjudicating those disputes, the residential tenancy branch can pass regulations dealing with a litany of different subjects 
that come to bear on actually how landlords and their tenants will have their relations governed in a substantive way, and furthermore, in how we will address any adjudication of disputes. So delegation, uh, we'll talk about why the legislatures like it so much in a second, but before that I do want to um, just call to mind the distinction that the book draws between what it classifies as rules on the one hand and soft law on the other. I think these are helpful terms, um, but they may, uh, if we don't take the time to define them, cause more confusion than assistance. So to be clear, what the court, what the book means by rules is legally binding instruments. And overwhelmingly what they're talking about are regulations. And regulations, we'll remember, look like statutes, read like statutes, read like very boring, detailed statutes. But the distinction between regulations and statutes is that regulations are not directly passed by the legislature, but rather the legislature empowers somebody to pass regulations, and it's usually a minister. It doesn't have to be, but it usually is. So rules, as the book defines it, you want to think is pretty much they're talking about regulations, but there are a few other um, types of instruments that fall into this rules framework in that they are legally binding, A, but not directly passed by parliament as legislation, B, because that's kind of the preconditions to be a rule. One of these that um, you know I've mentioned before, but I don't think I've stressed enough, is municipal bylaws which are really, like municipal law is so closely adjacent to administrative law. Um, it's a um, fundamentally concerned with whether these bodies, these municipal councils, have exercised their delegated power, which comes from legislation, in a manner that's consistent with the delegated authority that they are given. Uh, so municipal law, admin law, very closely related, and the court, or the book, I keep saying court, the book lumps bylaws in with regulations under this category of rules, and I say appropriately so. The, um, the other form that the book talks about are what are called orders in council, and these are orders that are issued by cabinet directly, They don't necessarily come from a statutory grant of power. They could also come from a prerogative uh, source of power to issue an order in council. We will look at orders in council a bit more in depth later in the course. Uh, they do come up in a case that we're going to, to examine. Um, but I won't say more about them except just to flag them as properly another thing that is legally binding, but which doesn't find its source in legislation. The legislator didn't pass an order in council. That was the executive. That was cabinet. So rules, legally binding, and not passed by the legislature directly. 
regulations, municipal bylaws, and orders and council are your examples. Soft law, what the book are, is referring to are guidelines, policy guidance documents, things that are put forward by the tribunal which do not have the force of law, but which may very well influence how a decision maker applies the law in practice and may be determinative uh, of how the law is applied in some circumstances and which may give rise to fettering concerns. That's something we'll get to uh, in the second half of today's lecture. The concept of soft law may seem familiar to you if you've done international law. They talk about soft law in the international context. And it's, it's a decent analogy to, to have in mind. Again, it's the sort of thing that there isn't a legal consequence for not following, and that you can't say that you've acted unlawfully by failing to follow this guidance. Um, but it may influence how the court, uh, or how the administrative tribunal applies the law in practice. And it potentially could give rise to a legitimate expectation and therefore uh, procedural fairness uh, right, an increased right of procedural fairness. Okay, any questions on that rules and soft law distinction? All right, let's. Um, let's move on to sort of the, the why question, which I've touched, but I think we should examine in a bit more detail. So why delegate to an admin tribunal, and specifically, why delegate to them the power to decide the rules and the process that is going to be applied? And the book, I think, helpfully breaks it down into, I think, four categories, um, perhaps three. They say, first, expertise. And as the administrative state, the regulatory state, gets broader and broader and broader and covers more and more complex and detailed subjects, it simply is impossible for the legislature, even with its you know, ample resources, to be an expert in all the, the fine minutia. Um, you could think of something like environmental regulation, regulation of harmful substances that are discharged in the environment, and the level of expertise that it takes to know, you know what volatile organic compound in what concentration discharged at what rate in what medium is going to cause effects on what, and are those effects tolerable or are those effects you know, in exceedance of what we can reasonably bear as a society? And what are the benefits to an industry of being able to discharge or use this chemical? Um, you know, that's not the level of detail that you sign up for when you get nominated to go, you know, run for office. That, that is, that's a level of technical expertise that doesn't reside in the legislature. So what does the legislature do? Create a body, ensure that body has the expertise to grapple with this sort of an issue, and give that body the power to pass those specific rules that should hopefully accomplish the legislature's broader aim.
A second reason why delegate, which is very much tied to the first explanation I just gave, is the question of time and expertise. Uh, so even leaving, or sorry, time and information, um, even leaving aside expertise, if you were to pause it, well, perhaps the legislature could um, get its head around pollution control uh, issues. Well, is that the best use of legislative time? Or are there other priorities in addition to the admittedly very important pollution issues that also bear attention? And is it not better to uh, delegate some of the detail, uh, nitty sort of decision-making process so that you can have a broader focus and have the ability to resolve many issues? You know, it seems in theory a sensible proposition. And then information, and that again is the resources of the uh, government at the legislative level it may not include access to the full information from all the industry players and the scientists and the academics that would be necessary to regulate a very detailed scientific area. Whereas if you create a body with uh, strong internal expertise and perhaps some information gathering powers to require or compel information, then you may have a body that is not only has the time and the expertise, but also the informational basis upon which to regulate these, these areas. Flexibility is the last one. And that just comes down to making legislation is a pain in the butt. You gotta do the first reading, you gotta have a second reading, you gotta go to committees, you gotta go to the Senate, you gotta have a third reading, the Senate process goes basically through the same steps. There's a finite number of bills that can get passed just in the pure nature of uh, you know, volume of things that can be pushed through this lengthy process. And there's no way you're responding in a matter of weeks or days to an emergent issue. But if you find out that there's some new compound that isn't actually listed as one of the you know, many uh, compounds that can't be discharged in the environment, but it is currently wrecking a fish habitat, uh, but you've given a minister a regulatory power to pass a regulation to add that compound to a list of prohibited uh, substances, that can happen in hours, right? It can happen very, very quickly. Um, there's, there can be a regulation allowing you to make, or a power to allow uh, issuance of emergency orders, emergency regulations, which can happen, as I say, exceedingly quickly. So flexibility allows you to bypass the legislative process and allows you to tweak things. Okay, let's, let's set the balance right here but let's monitor and let's see within six months if the concentrations in this stream have gone down or if we have to further decrease the rate at which you can release this chemical. That type of a flexibility is available in a regulatory context when you're dealing with regulations. It's not available in the legislative context without you know, great legislative will being expended. Does that all make sense, those sort of reasons that the delegation is attractive? 
and I mean, I would say, frankly, necessary in order to have an effective modern state. Some degree of delegation of this rulemaking authority is, is probably uh, necessary. So I really like this chapter because it kind of gives you the, really the push and pull on these issues. And I don't really know where the author comes down because it seems to just you know, put both sides out there pretty fairly. Uh, the author then goes on to say, well, what are the problems? And I think it's neat the way it situates within this principal agent problem, which is a, a broader sort of sociological phenomenon that finds resonance in many different areas, where when a principal assigns a responsibility to an agent to act on their behalf, you may not have an alignment of the interests of the principal and the agent. Um, you know, I think the classic example of this is if you're selling your house, um, you get a realtor, say the realtor is gonna take 5%, and let's say the realtor can get you $1 million in a week's worth of time, that can get you, you know, one million dollars and twenty thousand, one million and twenty thousand dollars in a month's worth of time. Is it worth you waiting three more weeks to get, you know, nineteen thousand more dollars? Yes, like of course I will wait a month to get nineteen thousand dollars. Thank you very much. Is it worth the realtor's time to work three extra weeks to get five percent of nineteen thousand dollars? Maybe not. Right? So there can be a principal-agent dichotomy there where the interests of the agent don't necessarily align with the interests of the principal. And this can land in, the, um, in this regulatory context in, in any number of ways. And we'll get into it a, a bit more when we talk about the idea of regulatory capture in a few minutes. Uh, and, and that's probably its most nefarious exercise. But, but there are any number of different circumstances where you could imagine the will of the legislature and the balance it wants to strike um, over the subject matter, which is delegated broadly, not being shared by the body to which it delegates to. And the composition of that body will really matter quite a bit. The book has a nice example of Let's say we're talking about pipeline regulation and you have a choice of staffing the National Energy Board or the Canada Energy Regulator, as it's now called, with either people who come from uh, the engineering side of constructing pipelines or people who come from the government relations side of improving Aboriginal uh, relations and treaty rights uh, you know, administration. Are you going to get different rules based on who you staff your, your board with? Of course you are. And so um, the ability for the individuals, um, the interests, the, the structure, even to have incentives which make the delegated body depart from the goals that the legislature initially envisioned for this are absolutely possible. And good legislators need to be very alive to the incentives they're creating or allowing to, to grow within these bodies that have delegated powers. Um, the idea of regulatory capture, maybe I will just touch on it now, 
is that idea that the group who is regulated has a strong incentive to control the regulators. And that's obvious, right? If you are going to engage in um, financial transactions, securities trading, you would really like to have your regulator be somebody who shares your worldview, shares your goals, and perhaps even is in some way beholden to you. And um, the risk that the regulator is beholden to you is significantly high in a circumstance where the regulator may consciously or not have an interest in moving back into the industry at some point. So, you know, let's say I go and I become a, um, I work for the BC Securities Commission regulating trading. In the back of my mind, I think, boy, maybe I would love to grab a little job at, a, you know, at the TD trading desk. Um, and maybe I could, you know, make in five years, the end of my career, more money than I made in my entire life. Um, is that going to influence how you're going to make your decisions? It might. It really might. So there's an incentive to have people that the industry would love to have people who are favorable or even beholden to it in the position of regulators. It's, it sounds like, okay, well then just don't do that. But if you want expertise, you know, who are the people with the expertise? Probably the people who work in the industry. So there's a, a balance here where when you try to find expertise, you have to make sure that expertise doesn't come at the expense of regulatory capture. Any questions on the concept of regulatory capture, kind of broadly what it means? All right. So I really like the book talking about another um, downside of delegation being the sort of um, you know, less than, uh, less than stellar in, or reason behind delegating of seeking political cover from difficult decisions. So the legislature doesn't want to have to decide on a hard issue. And so one option is to give jurisdiction of that issue to an administrative body so they can claim some measure of distance from that. And, and the book talks about how you can really have your cake and eat it too. Um, when the, let's say a government passes strict pollution control measures and they get to you know, campaign on, we passed the toughest anti-pollution act in Canadian history. And then you say, well, it certainly will be some exemptions for some existing polluters. Aha, that'll be a, um, We'll give a regulatory power to grant exemptions, and we'll give that to cabinet, who's me. And, and so I will both campaign on having passed this tough anti-pollution measures, and I will ensure that people who have looked after me um, are seeing a, a nice little exemption. And that, that could be absolutely a, um, a dynamic that could you know, play. Maybe not that explicitly, but but broadly, there's a potential truth there. So you want to think about the political incentives, both for pushing something to a regulator 
and also for who is going to be given this power to, you know, to have a delegated authority over the subject. And will it be kept at a high level in cabinet? Will it be moved down to a lower level within the bureaucracy? These are, these are interesting structural questions. And really all that we can do on a, su on a subject this big is to raise these questions and hope that you understand the dynamics. Um, they really can play out in nearly infinite different ways. Yeah. I guess to that point, um, so the only thing that would motivate the legislature to have like a regulatory body that is like equally comprised, for example, if it's on an environmental issue of an indigenous perspective as well as like the CEB. Yeah. So the only like the only thing that's motivating the legislature to have a body that incorporates different incentives, different like stakeholder interests in the issue is just like a political will. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, and I mean, it, it, that doesn't necessarily, not necessarily a bad thing. Like, you do see um, governments come who take a different view as to the importance of, of reconciliation as compared to uh, you know, sort of advancing profit at all costs and um, may seek structural changes to bodies to further that, that goal um, coming out of the Trans Mountain pipeline process. There was a indigenous advisory board struck for the National Energy Board, CER, that um, you know, has had some positive things to say on not the if, but some of the how of that pipeline and there's a rerouting to avoid, I think it was a Kwantlen, maybe Coldwater, one of those nations um, had a, a, a sensitive site and there was a rerouting that I think the, that board had a bit of a, a say in. Um, but yes, I think that you kind of have to think about the, the outcome of, le of the legislature entirely in terms of political incentives. Um, and then can't lose sight of those incentives when seeing how it trickles down into the executive and the structure broadly and how it reflects or perhaps doesn't reflect those incentives. Um, okay, so how, so that is the little bit on the, the pros and cons of delegating why you should do it, perhaps why it's inevitable that it gets done at times, but some of the drawbacks that you may try to avoid or you may just accept as the cost of this more efficient um, form of governance. So then, if you accept you're going to be doing it, then the next question is how much power indeed gets delegated? And the only way to find that out, of course, is to read the statute read the piece of legislation that provides power to an executive uh, decision maker to ascertain what the scope of intended delegation is. And I'm gonna put a bit of a pin in that point because that's kind of the West Fraser Mills case is, is a bit about that. So we're gonna come back into that when we talk about judicial oversight. Um, you want to be aware, though, and this will resonate as well in the West Fraser Mills discussion, you want to be aware that 
just the purpose, the regulation clause in and of itself may not tell the whole story uh, as to what the legislature actually intended to delegate. And you may need to look at the act as a whole. And we'll actually see that quite interestingly when I, in the sign, I'm gonna talk about a bit about Justice Cote's dissent in West Virginia Mills. And you want to look, so the scheme of the act as a whole, broadly how it works, and does this regulation, uh, you know, fit, how does this regulation power fit within that scheme? It needs to work in a coherent way. And you also want to not forget those, you know, sometimes overlooked purpose clauses of legislation. The purpose of this legislation is to do this, this, and this. And if regulations start to be entirely far afield from that, you may run into a problem. Again, we'll come back to that with West Fraser Mills. So when you think, though, about how much power you know, should be delegated, well, up to the legislature. How much power can be delegated? A lot. Until you run into that Section 96 courts problem, it's really an issue of parliamentary supremacy. And if the parliament chooses to empower the executive in this way, absent a constitutional constraint on that legislation itself, they can. It's allowed to. And oftentimes, it is really broad. Okay, so then, to whom should the regulation-making power be given? Again, that's Parliament's choice. Um, oftentimes, it's given to the governor and council or to a specific minister. The governor and council, of course, you want to think is cabinet. I keep saying governor and council because my background is a little more federal, having worked for the federal government. Um, the provincial counterpart of the governor and council is the lieutenant governor and council. It's the same body, it's the same idea, the provincial cabinet. So you could say cabinet, governor and council, which is technically the governor general acting on the advice of the cabinet, can pass regulations. You could say the minister may pass regulations. And that may make you think, well, it's not that far removed then from parliament, because what's cabinet? It's a bunch of people who are in parliament who are also ministers. And what's a minister? Well, it's a parliamentarian who's got a second hat in the executive. But of course, the ministerial role is not to sit with a pen and paper and the test tubes and figuring out the degree of volatile organic compounds that we tolerated. The minister will act on the advice of the agency beneath it, which can be an infinitely bureaucratic and complicated um, agency and, and to actually unpack who and on what basis a specific regulation was proposed, for what reason, uh, it can be really, really tricky. So you, you may get signed off by the Ministry of Environment, but it may come from um, really the sort of the, the depths of a, a basement in Ottawa as to you know somebody coming up with the precise wording and language and, and you know numbers and rates that are going to be in that regulation. So, you want to think, 
broadly read the legislation to see who the regulatory power has been given to. But understand that that may not tell the whole story, that the actual uh, making of the regulations probably isn't happening at the cabinet or ministerial level, but farther down in the government pyramid. Sometimes the power will be granted to the body itself. Uh, they may create an administrator um, that the residential tenancies scheme has the director of residential tenancies, the position that somebody has. You may see the chair of a tribunal be given a regulation-making power. So it doesn't have to be somebody with political accountability to satisfy responsible government. And that's because, of course, ultimately, where's the responsible government check? It's on the legislature creating this regulation-making power in the first place. Sometimes the scheme will say, okay, I will let this you know, administrative official that I've created through statute uh, pass regulations but there will be a process by which they are reviewed and checked by cabinet. That's another mechanism that can be used. So again, I don't think it's necessary to do a full taxonomy of every conceivable permutation of, of who could pass regulations and who might have oversight over their passage of regulations. But what you want to just, again, harken back to, where is the answer going to be in the statute, in the statute that creates the power. If you give it to the administrative body, of course, you have to bear in mind the membership of that body. That's the point we made earlier. The book has a nice point, too, about the Law Society of Ontario having some regulatory powers, and the body is comprised of the benchers, the elected benchers, but also some people who are not lawyers are also part of that, that body. And so there may be efforts to um, bring different perspectives into the entity to whom you are giving a regula regulation-making power. Okay, so moving sort of quickly, there's just a lot to cover today. Um, please don't hesitate to jump in with questions. So let's talk then about consultation. It's an interesting problem. To what degree should these delegated decision makers with this authority coming from legislatures who can pass regulations and affect people's rights, to what extent must they consult with the public or the regulated industry before doing so? To what extent can they? And to what extent should they? And to what extent must they? Now, 
the first point you want to have, and you probably already have this, is if we're talking about the making of a regulation that is broadly applicable, general, you are unlikely to say a duty of fairness has been triggered at common law. And that's because, if you remember, we talked about when is a duty of fairness at common law triggered? Well, it's when a government decision affects your rights or your privileges. But one exception is for true legislative acts. The legislature doesn't have to provide procedural fairness to everybody affected by legislation that passes. And similarly, when exercising a general regulatory power, there isn't a common law duty of procedural fairness triggered either. It's an exception, which we mentioned earlier in the class. If it's regulation, or if it's a law, like a bylaw, that is particularly targeting one individual for one dispute, you might have a procedural fairness right triggered. But assuming it's not that exception, you, you can't look to common law procedural fairness to say that there's an obligation to provide you some process prior to the, legis or the um, delegated decision maker exercising a regulatory power. So where do you find any process right that you may have? Well, again, it's going to be the statutes, right? Statutes are, are potentially another regulation, I suppose. And so there are statutes that require specific procedures to be followed prior to this delegated um, individual being able to exercise their authority. Minister, you could pass regulations covering this, this, and this subject, but only after posting it online and providing a two-week pub, uh, public comment period and um, notifying this, this, and this you know, affected industry group. Absolutely fine for the legislature to do that. They may very well choose to do that. So if you have somebody who is concerned about a regulation, what's one line of attack to look at? Well, I better check the box of making sure that any procedural requirements in the statute about consultation and notice were complied with. That may be a ground for challenging the regulation. This type of process is, uh, the, sorry, the idea that the legislation specifically requires a process prior to passing regulations absolutely exists in Canada, but to a much lesser degree than it does in the United States, where there are fairly extensive procedural requirements that are required before many different sorts of regulation can go into force. One of the um, sort of early, I forget what the exact issue is, and one of you may remember, but there was some personally to my politics, abhorrent regulation passed by the Trump administration um, that had everybody up in arms, and I can't remember which one it was, 
but it fell on the fact that they just hadn't gone through the notice and comment period that was necessary under the statute before that regulation could be passed. So rather than challenging the actual substance of the regulation or seeking to overcome that with the political will to replace it with a new administration, one avenue was to say, hey, you didn't follow the procedure. You got to put it up for 30 days and you got to take comments. You didn't do that. So these statutory obligations um, can be a source for challenge to a regulation if the procedural requirements are not complied with. Does that mean that the, they couldn't then go through the process and pass the same regulation? Of course not. It's just procedure. Um, so let's think a bit about consultation. Is it a good thing? And I think you probably want to land on sometimes. It depends on who is being consulted and on what. There may very well be information that the uh, regulating body simply doesn't know. And getting public consultation can just lead to better governance. You may not have realized you know, the importance of this sensitive water course to this broader fish habitat, but I, I can tell you about it because I did my master's thesis on it. And wouldn't it be better to move this project out of this watershed? Great, great public consultation. We got a better governance as a result. You also just demand the person with that delegated authority, think more about it when you have a consultation period. Uh, somebody comes to you and says, I need this regulation passed. It's really going to help this industry in this struggling time to bounce back from COVID. You think that's great. Love it. Like I fully support the restaurant industry bouncing back from COVID. Let's do it. Um, you have a public consultation period. You have a few weeks to, to cool off, and then you start seeing, well, what's the other side of this? What's the, what are the ripple effects? Let's be more careful and deliberative. So just having a procedural check on what can't otherwise be this vast, <laughs> vast process, you know, new laws, you know, I, I thought of it at noon, and it's the law by, 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 by dinner time. You know, having some procedural check can actually just be a good in and of itself. What are the drawbacks of public consultation and notice periods? Well, who shows up and who argues? You know, it's very often people with specific skin in the game. It's very often the regulated industry. And this problem may be especially acute when you imagine a diffuse benefit shared by lots of people in a small degree against a highly localized cost. So who's going to bear the brunt of this new regulation that requires the you know, smog buffers on this smokestack to run all day instead of 20 hours a day? Who's going to bear the cost? Who's going to be the, the, the factory, the industry? Who's going to have the benefit of having slightly less sulfur in the atmosphere? It's all of us. 
Who knows for sure they're going to get sick because of sulfur? Nobody, right? So you may have this incentive structure where when you say, okay, what does everyone think about this? You're going to get 15 loud voices who are bearing the direct cost and no voices who are feeling the benefit, but that's just because of the localized cost versus diffuse benefits. And the, it's, it can go the other way around. You know, you can have um, localized benefits and diffuse costs and the, no individual there to articulate the costs. Um, and of course, the, the public is not infallible. Um, if you ever go to a, like a municipal council meeting, you definitely hear some things that are just not true. <laughs> but um, sometimes it's not obviously not true, and sometimes it's, you could see how a body could be misled by a perhaps innocently you know, incorrect public comment. All right, so I, I want you to leave that idea with the point that consultation on these delegated rulemaking um, powers is optional. It's not a procedural fairness issue. It may be required by the statute, and there are both benefits and drawbacks of choosing to go with the route of mandatory public consultation. Very rarely would you just not be able to. Usually it's a question of whether you must or simply can consult. Okay. Um, it's going to keep pressing through because I really do uh, have a fair amount still to get through. Um, nothing more exciting than the real nuances of delegated authority, but let's keep going. So I mentioned that there is legislation that specifically governs what process must be followed to accomplish certain regulations. The book has the Statutory Instruments Act as an example. I think that's a very good example to have in mind. And if you want to look at the sort of, on a federal side, the the key piece of legislation governing the obligations prior to issuing the regulation, that's the one to look at. Generally speaking, you're looking at posting the regulation and publishing it in the Canada Gazette, or kind of the base level of requirements. Um, but the book notes that many pieces of legislation specifically exempt the regulation making of power from the need to comply with the Statutory Instruments Act. And so, uh, if you want to have truly flexible sort of emergency powers, you may say you can't have to comply with this act and these processes. Um, so we're kind of now moving into constraints on the regulatory process. You know, the first one being legislation that directly constrains how the regulations can be made. The second one is executive self-restraint. And this is an interesting idea I had not thought of prior to reading this section of the book. And it's the idea that if power is vested in cabinet or vested in ministers, 
the executive can itself impose rules on how those powers will be exercised. And it comes through the form of a cabinet directive. The cabinet directive is basically the prime minister or the cabinet as a whole issuing a directive saying, hey, members of cabinet, you are expected to do this, this, and this before exercising this power. And that cabinet directive could have to do with what needs to be done before a regulation is passed. And indeed, there have been cabinet directions on that subject. So how is a cabinet directive enforced? Is it legally binding? I'd say probably not. But what happens if you're the minister, you're not following the cabinet directives? What could the prime minister do? Give you a big boot right out of the cabinet, right? So your incentive to keep your position within the government is to follow the cabinet directives issued by the government that you're a part of. It's an interesting idea as to how the executive can put in these constraints. Um, we're gonna bear in mind this idea of self-constraining the regulatory power through executive action when we come back to fettering. So I think there may be a tension between cabinet directives used in this way and the concept of fettering discretion. Okay, so what's the big um, way, though, to, to challenge or to constrain? Who's the, the branch that has the big role in constraining these regulations? Well, in some sense, it's, it's the judiciary. Making sure that the regulatory powers stay within the scope of the delegated authority from the legislature. Um, the book talks about the duty to consult and accommodate in the context of regulation powers. I don't want to get into depth in that because we do have a whole section on Aboriginal law and administrative law coming up. Um, the big takeaway, though, is um, there's no duty to consult on legislation. There may be a duty to consult on specific guidelines and targeted regulations that affect the nation. But we'll, we'll come back to that when we have a better foundation in the intersection of Aboriginal law and um, admin law. I have a question. Yeah. In the first, you said um, the tension between uh, between this uh, this executive capture mm -hmm. and also uh, also the separation between executive and the legislature. So first, you say uh, ministers are members of the parliament, which comes from the legislature. So how could we avoid or deny the legislative capture over executive? That was the answer, or presumably the theoretical answer of a bottom-up kind of consultation or a bureaucratic consultation to the minister to kind of you know, uh, give the minister a discretion to um, decide 
not being influenced too much by the legislature. But when you come back to the cabinet directives or guidelines issued by the ministers or the prime minister, and from the bigger, that's also uh, it's also confirmed that they could be um, they could be taken into consideration by the, by the courts. So this tension between um, the separation of powers over awarding uh, legislature, legislature, legislature or capture, and executive independence kind of come, uh, yeah. you know, come convince it. Well, there's two big issues there. So when I talk about capture, I was talking about industry capture, like not the legislature taking over a board, but rather the actual regulated industry capturing the board, taking over and uh, pursuing its interests to some greater or lesser degree. Um, but the point about separation of powers is a, just a fundamental tension in the Canadian public law framework. Uh, if you're going to have the executive at its highest level staffed by ministers who are by constitutional convention also elected representatives so as to get democratic legitimacy and responsible government you know, ideas fulfilled, um, you have this problem of, of you know, the same person wearing two hats. The Jody Wilson-Raybould affair with SNC-Lavalin was a great example of the tensions that come into play when you're trying to both um, be the Minister of Justice and the Attorney General at the same time. And there's any number of instances where you can see a tension between um, the legislative aims and the political aims and the purely executive administering the law aims. So I don't, that's a topic that's almost too big to really have a concise, you know, or satisfactory answer for, but it's a great background fact just to always bear in mind when we're thinking about these issues. The separation of powers, when it comes up, is very strong between the judiciary and the legislature and the judiciary and the executive. It is very weak between the legislature and the executive at the highest levels. The farther down the executive you go, obviously, the more separate you get from the legislature. But fundamentally, what you want to bear in mind is the distinction between something coming out of the legislature, statutes, and something that is arising out of the executive, you know, regulations sourced in statutory powers. So let's take a pause. Actually, I didn't even notice the time. Um, let's take 10, and we'll come back, and um, I'll talk about judicial review of uh, delegated authority. All right, let's get back to it. Um, You know, what are they building there? Do you know? The art center. The art center. Like visual arts or like arts? Like for, okay, like Buchanan. Yeah. Just really showing art students like, you have to go to law school eventually. <laughs> um, all right. So let's, um, let's talk about oversight. Oversight again of these regula regulation-making powers. There's really two forms of it, judicial and legislative. If the legislature doesn't like a regulation, what can it do? Just pass a law, right? What, what, what trumps regulation? Legislation. 
you could take away the regulation making power you could um, pass a specific law that that it co governs the the subject and that would trump in the conflict with the regulation more realistically the government would probably uh, strongly suggest to the, um, the minister or the governing council, whoever it was, you know, to rescind that regulation. But you want to think that legislation in the hierarchy trumps regulation. So the legislature can always oversee and change regulation it doesn't like. And it can, uh, as part of its you know, fact-finding process, and certainly the legislature does have tools at its disposal, committees, staff, etc to do research, um, certainly that it can, um, it can check in and require reporting on regulations and how they've been uh, working in practice and it, it may very well take an active interest in reforming an area that's been regulated in a uh, way it doesn't see fit or doesn't, it doesn't agree with is, is fit. And a, a change in government can very often uh, very quickly accomplish significant changes in the regulatory framework through different legislative priorities, direct legislation, or through new people being installed in those positions with the power to amend those regulations. I mean, what do you hear, you know, every government basically say they're going to cut is all that red tape. What's red tape? It's regulations, basically. So the legislator broadly can, yeah? Look at past legislation directing it to do and so. And yeah. Well, if it it depends who the power is given to. So if it's given to somebody totally independent of the government, it's there's the director of residential tenancies. Then no, yeah, they can't be directly told by the legislature what to do. Um, and that's getting at questions of institutional independence we talked about last week. If the power vests in the Minister of Environment or something like that, put a new minister in, it's gonna make the change that you want. So there's, the answer is sort of, you have to look at the specific structure. But broadly, the idea that if the legislator doesn't like the regulatory path that's been gone down, it has the jurisdiction to change that through legislation is kind of the key oversight points you want to make for that. Um, the other form of oversight, of course, is judicial oversight. And here again, you want to think, well, what's the judicial role? Why is this falling in admin law? Well, it's the courts supervising something in the executive. And what's the only basis that we supervise the executive? Well, it's to make sure it stays within the scope of its jurisdiction. The legislature gave some actor in the executive the power to pass regulations. If that person were to pass regulations that are outside of that power, courts need to be able to say so. And it could be, uh, and again, if you want to just accept that proposition on a base level, uh, if you empower the Minister of Environment to make regulations on pollution control, um, you know, they plainly can't go imposing a liquor tax collectible by themselves personally, like something absurd like that. There has to be limits. So we're 
patrolling the limits to make sure the regulations that are passed actually fall within the power that Parliament gave somebody to pass those regulations. Now, that's the basic proposition. The practical reality is that if you want to challenge a regulation for falling outside of the regulation-making authority, it needs to be almost egregiously and obviously bad, just very far outside of what could conceivably be the proper sphere of regulation-making authority that was given by the legislature. There will be a high degree of deference to the regulation, uh, the exercise of the regulation-making power by that delegated individual, with the court comforting itself that there still is the legislative oversight if this person's really gone too far. That isn't to say, though, that there isn't some role for the courts. And that's where we're getting to the Hansard Spruce Mills case. Um, before that, I want to just mention a passage from a case that's referenced in Hansard Spruce Mills, um, the CATS, K-A-T-Z group case which um, has a nice sort of summation of the principle. And this excerpt is in the notes that I'll, I'll put up. And the court in that case, I forget what judge wrote this, um, starts off, regulations benefit from a presumption of validity. This has two aspects. It places the burden on challengers to demonstrate the invalidity of regulations rather than on the body to justify it themselves. Okay, that makes sense. We're starting with the proposition. It's a, it looks like a duly passed regulation, and you're the one who wants to say it's uh, ultra-virus. It's your burden. But the second point that they make, I think, is more interesting. They say, this favors an interpretive approach that reconciles the regulation with its enabling statute so that where possible, the regulation is construed in a manner which renders it intravirus. And this is a really good base proposition to have in the back of your mind, not just here, but in other construction of statutory instruments, statutes or regulations. Um, it's very much akin to the presumption of constitutionality. If I can interpret legislation in two ways, one of which is constitutionally problematic and the other is not, I should interpret it in the not constitutionally problematic way and assume the legislature didn't intend to act unconstitutionally. Similarly, very similarly, if I can interpret a regulation in two ways, one way, which falls within the scope of the regulatory making power assigned by the legislature, and the other which doesn't, well, I certainly should favor the interpretation that falls within the scope of the power. Presume an interpretation that's going to keep it intravirus. So the first task, if the court is faced with a challenge to a regulation, is to properly interpret that regulation and properly interpret it with the presumption that, if possible, I'll interpret it in a way that falls within the scope of this jurisdiction. So keep that in mind for your toolbox of arguments if you're going to challenge a regulation, because you may not need 
to get so far as to have the court strike the thing down to get your client some success. Rather, you may be able to say, if you interpret it as applying to my client in my situation, well, then that would be outside of the jurisdiction. But surely that can't have been the actual intention. So interpret it more narrowly. It doesn't apply to my client, and it can stand. You don't have to strike it down. So you want to have that sort of approach in mind as a, as a potential avenue to go. Um, the, the court goes on. I'm still in this Katz case, just to give you a few of the principles which resonate in Fraser Mills. They say very clearly, this inquiry does not involve assessing the policy merits to determine whether the regulation was necessary, wise, or will be effective in practice. So we're not here to judge on how good you're doing at your job of regulating this industry. It's no, you don't have a case if you just say, oh my God, can you have this regulation putting a huge burden on me and I can't, my business is closing because of it. And they say, well, it sounds like a really bad piece of regulation, but it sure does fall within the power of this body to make that kind of regulation. I'm not gonna opine on the wisdom of it. That's what you run into there. And so what you fundamentally have is either something that is so insanely outside of what the statute's about, it's almost kind of laughable on its face, in which case you've got the clear, you can't regulate liquor in the context of talking about species at risk sort of absurd problem, which just doesn't arise. The other avenue though, the more sort of fruitful avenue, is to say, when you analyze this act in its totality, and you consider the underlying purpose of this regulation, it just has no connection. And the court's very clear, they say, look, this is not an inquiry into the underlying political, economic, social, partisan considerations that animated this regulatory power. This is really just, what is the act itself? Yeah. Um, sorry, I was just... No, go ahead. You go ahead and finish, but it was a question that kind of relates to this, because in the book, it talks about CATS being um, a review of regulations made by cabinet. Yeah. But then they go on to say that a Dunsmere framework would apply for regulations that are made by boards and tribunals. I was just curious how to reconcile those, but please finish what you were saying. Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I did sort of gloss over the question of standard of review to apply to regulations. And some of the nuance in that question has been, I think, dispelled by Vavilov, but not explicitly. So it's sort of a bit of a leap from the implications of Vavilov. Um, I think for present purposes, you'd want to just have in mind this idea that deference to the decisions of the empowered regulator is, is high and has consistently been high. Um, there's a discussion in the West Fraser Mills about a correctness versus reasonableness approach to the regulation in that case also. Um, 
And I think that that argument would really have basically fallen away post-Babylon. Um, but it's a great point you raise, an important one, and one that I may kind of put a more of a pin in because we're going to be so deep into this for the next two weeks. That, Just to clarify, yeah. um, my question was more, do we look at it differently if it's made by cabinet or board of tribunals, or is it the same standard about the regulation? No, that's a great question. And so my answer would be, post Babylon, I would say it's the same standard, okay. almost certainly. Uh, a reasonableness standard. Prior to, um, you certainly could find authority that would suggest a, um, a highest degree of deference to cabinet, given their nature as a polycentric decision-making body that decides the highest policy questions and balances you know, absolutely disparate concerns to try to achieve effective governance and implement a political mandate. So, yeah, it's a great question. Um, cabinet is special and different. It does have different considerations. Um, but some of that has collapsed a bit in the standard of review. But there's just, there's, there's different levels to that um, proposition I just said. And what I said is probably the kind of base level truth, but there's more nuance to it that we're going to see. So I'm so tempted to go down the rabbit hole right now. But I think I'll, um, I'll resist, but we will certainly be back in there. Um, so where I was getting at is I said, the angle you can take is to say you're outside of the purpose of this legislation. The court says, okay, but when you're talking about purpose, I don't want to hear about what politically motivated the liberal government in you know, the Martin years to pass this. I want to just stay within the confines of the statute fundamentally to understand what this statute specifically accomplishes and why you say this regulation is completely outside of that. And what they say is you need to get to a standard of this regulation being irrelevant, extraneous, completely unrelated to the statutory purpose, i.e. a really high bar. It's not enough just to say, well, you know, you probably could accomplish this statutory purpose other ways or this doesn't seem to be the most effective way to get your, your thing accomplished. You need to say this is irrelevant, this is unrelated, this is extraneous to the statute, this is kind of just shoved into the statute. Um, so fundamentally what they say is it's, it's going to be very hard. That's the Katz case. And coming back to this proposition a second, I'll go through Fraser Mills. My notes are a little bit not that great organized, and I realized I didn't talk about fettering. So I need to talk quickly about fettering before I do Fraser Mills, otherwise I'll, I'll forget. Fettering, we've talked about it before, is this idea that if you were given jurisdiction and discretion by the legislature, you are to accept and exercise that jurisdiction and discretion and you as an executive body are not to unduly limit that jurisdiction by imposing constraints on yourself. This comes up most often in, or really exclusively, in relation to these guide, the soft law, the guidelines, 
policy documents. So if you have a situation where there's a body who wants to get some consistency in its judgments, so it sets out detailed guidance on how it's going to interpret and apply its enabling statute. That can be a very good thing. It can achieve consistency. But if that guidance is applied in a rote and inflexible way, and is applied in a way which artificially limits the types of dispute that will be resolved or the types of remedies that are available or the types of considerations that could go in to making a decision in a way that is inconsistent then with the legislative intent. No, we, we asked you to resolve these questions broadly. Uh, we didn't tell you to narrow your analysis to these three factors and you now are not discharging your, your powers properly. That's when you can have an argument that you have unlawfully fettered your discretion. You've imposed constraints upon yourself the legislature did not intend. So that's what fettering is. If you have a problem with policy guidelines, soft law, how it applies to your case, it's probably the angle you have to go. You might say that the policy guideline is inconsistent with legislation or regulations, or we'll get into this, but charter values you could, you could raise. But your main line of attack is probably to say this policy guideline goes too far and fetters the discretion that Parliament intended to give to this body. Um, there's an example in the book, they talk about how in um, a, another case involving humanitarian and compassionate exemptions to immigration rules, there was a finding that policy guidelines had been applied in a strict and inflexible way, and that had in fact fettered the discretion of this decision maker, who should have been taking into account I think, things like mental health that didn't fall well within the policy guidelines. So you, you can imagine, I go to say, humanitarian compassionate relief, my client suffers from um, paranoid schizophrenia, which makes it extremely difficult to think that they're gonna be able to um, travel back to their country and reapply for citizenship, or for a residency and not fall into problems there. And then the person says, yes, interesting, but I've got this checklist, I don't see that anywhere on there. And that's a cl classic kind of fettering issue you may have. Um, last point before I jump into Fraser Mills, relatively briefly, and then very briefly on Section 96 Courts. You want to think, oh boy, it sounds hard to challenge regulations and soft law. It sounds like I really have to say it's kind of crazy out there in order to challenge a regulation directly, and I need to fall in this box of fettering basically to challenge soft law or show it's inconsistent with the broader legislation. 
And that may seem like a bad thing, and it can be in some situations, but you also want to think who generally is going to be the most interested in challenging regulations, and it's often the regulated industries themselves. And um, you know, some certainly some people take a view that um, let industry do what it wants and let the market sort out how that all lands. Defense of a political view, but many other people think, well, if you just let incentives run amok without checks on those incentives, you'll ultimately lead to negative outcomes. You know, bad externalities and other industry players or other people in the in the um, broader body politic. And um, so, by making regulations difficult to challenge, you have perhaps prevented a situation where the most moneyed and motivated interests are able to take a big chunk out of the sort of regulatory uh, state in, as it applies to their industry. So there, there may be good reasons for judicial restraints in this context. Just again, I don't want to land anywhere on that. I just want you to understand the dynamic. Okay, so let's talk quickly about West Fraser Mills. Um, interesting case. The lawyers, I, I wanted to show you a video of it, but I don't have time. Um, we're gonna get into some videos of the arguments from Babylon other cases. It was my, one of my admin law profs, who I've referenced previously, against a guy who I coached literally baseball together with. <laughs> and the admin law profs like, big firm guy, like real gray-haired, and my buddy Jeremy. So it was, Jeremy won, I was happy. Uh, so, um, this was a case involving a tragic accident that leaves a worker dead. Um, a rotting tree, strikes a worker working in an area held under a forestry license owned by West Fraser Mills. So the forestry license scheme is very complex, but broadly, you can have an interest in land that is ownable, transferable, saleable, called a forestry license that empowers you, as long as you comply with regulations, get appropriate permits, etc., to harvest the wood in that area. Um, owning one of those things is really valuable and that may be the asset your company holds and then you may subcontract a lot of the work out to other companies to actually you know, perform the service of extracting the trees and supporting the workers who are doing that. And indeed that's broadly what West Fraser Mills was doing and the person who got hurt was an independent contractor not an employee of West Fraser Mills. And what this case raises is, or the, the facts of this case involve a regulation that requires an owner to ensure safety. And a part of the statute, the Workers' Compensation Act of British Columbia, that can fine uh, for a violation. Um, now, the 
The fine issue is interesting, and it's a substantive judicial review question. Uh, it's not something we're going to get to today. The statute talks about employers being subject to fines, and the question is whether this owner could constitute an employer for the purposes of this fining provision. And there's strong dissents from Justices Roe, Brown, and Cote on that point. But the interesting issue for our purposes is whether this regulation imposing an obligation to have a safe working environment applying to an owner is a valid regulation at all. So where is the court going to look? Well, the two key things are going to be the provision of the statute that empowers a regulation to be passed in the first place and the specific regulation. So the court helpfully excerpts each. And the regulation-making power says, in accordance with its mandate under this part, the board may make regulations the board considers necessary or advisable in relation to occupational health and safety and occupational environment. And then there's a without limiting subsection one, you may make regulations as follows, including requirements for protection of health and safety of workers, etc., etc. So you'll notice broad regulatory making power focusing on safety given to the board, that's the Workers' Compensation Board, so not the minister, not a GIC, but a lower level administrative body. So indeed the board did promulgate, I think is the word they use, a regulation that reads, the owner of a forestry operation must ensure that all activities of the forestry operation are both planned and conducted in a manner consistent with this regulation and with safe work practices acceptable to the board. So the, um, the regulation takes this liability for safety and says, I'm not putting it on the employer, I'm not putting it on the subcontractor, I'm going right to the top and saying this is an owner responsibility. And of course then the idea is that responsibility should trickle down through all the contractors through contract. The owner would have the um, contractors indemnify and insure, et cetera, et cetera, to make sure that that obligation is discharged. And so the majority judgment on this point is almost like fun or funny in how straightforward they see the whole thing. They're just like, yeah, so it says you can make regulations in relation to safety, and this is a regulation in relation to safety. So <laughs> it's, it really is as simple as that to them. Um, and so the majority judgment um, that the, the section of the judge, I think, is really a great summation of the point is paragraph 12. 
where the court says determining whether the regulation at issue represents a reasonable exercise of delegated power is at its core an exercise of statutory interpretation, considering the text of the law and their purpose and context. The court must determine if the regulation is inconsistent with the objective of the enabling statute or the scope of the statutory mandate to the point, for example, of being irrelevant, extraneous, or completely unrelated. To do this, the court should turn its mind to the typical purposive approach to statutory interpretation and seek an interpretive approach that reconciles the regulation with this enabling statute. So again, it's just summarizing that CATS approach. Interpret the thing, if you can, to fall within the regulation mandate, and only if you're getting so far as to be irrelevant, extraneous, completely unrelated, we have a problem, and my goodness, is that not the case here? So how could anybody see anything differently? I'll enter Justice Cote, and she says, well, hold on, it's not that simple. Listen, if you look at this act as a whole, the entire thing sets out responsibilities of owners and responsibility of um, employers and draws a strict distinction between those things. And this regulation, for the first time, completely blurs that distinction, extends employer obligations, which is where the, locate, the locus of the safety obligations had been, and fundamentally rewrites the statute. Parliament said, here's what the employer has to do, here's what the owner has to do, here's a regulatory power to accomplish this, and you have now fundamentally undercut that by drawing the employer obligations over to the owner. So, I mean, you don't have to buy it, but it's not a crazy position she's taking, certainly. And so it underscores that, well, it may seem simple, you know, especially in retrospect when you read one of these decisions. Like, of course, if A and B goes together, it makes, I don't know, C. The, there may be more complex things at stake or in play, and when considering an argument about a regulation, you know, don't just confine yourself to the specific regulation-making power, but also consider the act as a whole. Consider the broader scheme. Consider how the act works as a broader scheme. And you may be able to fashion an argument, you know, akin to the one that at least uh, convinced Justice Cote that the regulation is fundamentally inconsistent with that, and then you're always tying it back into Parliament's purpose. And Parliament didn't intend, she would say, for its structure of this act to be undercut by a regulation that changes the basic function. So I like the case because it gives you the clear default rule, just interpret the thing so that it's within jurisdiction, and if it's not crazy, we're going to be fine with it. But it also explains to you what would be the way around that. How would you make a more complex argument? And it would be to try to say that there's something more fundamental that's being missed about the legislative intention that you are allowing to be undermined by this regulation. All right, so let's just really quickly, that's the Fraser Mills case, interesting case, like the case. Let's quickly talk about um, Section 96 courts and delegation. Um, 
this again, what I'm talking about here is the question of can the legislature delegate some function to the executive? And again, this is a conceptually different question than interpreting whether the executive has properly exercised its delegated rulemaking authority, which is what we're talking about most of the day. This is a question of what constraints are there on the legislature's power to delegate in the first place. Um, and the issue arose most recently in relation to the Civil Resolution Tribunal, which took over a broad swath of motor vehicle matters and which pissed off the lawyers who work in personal injury. I mean, they basically are facing almost an existential risk to their, their um, little carve out of the profession, their niche in the profession. And so they challenged the, um, the delegation of this authority to the Civil Resolution Tribunal. What do you do when you have a hard argument? You want to win? You call Joe Arve, or at least you used to. Got Joe Arve on. And what did he do? Well, of course he won. <laughs> so he um, convinced Justice Hinkson that there was a problem here, Chief Justice Hinkson. And what's the problem? Well, it's fundamentally this. Section 96 of the Constitution Act, I'll be really quick on this. This will take two seconds. Section 96 of the Constitution Act contemplates superior courts. The governor general shall appoint the judges of the superior courts. Okay, that means they're going to be superior courts. What are the superior courts? What is their core functions? It's a weird little strain of originalism in Canadian constitutional law, but it is their functions as they existed in 1867. And so what the court has decided is that you can run into a problem when you delegate Section 96 powers to courts or tribunals. You can't erode the core jurisdiction of the superior courts for the very good reason you can't have the government saying, I don't like the superior courts who are playing a check on my legislative and executive functions. I want to get rid of them. You, you have to allow them to persist. So fundamentally, what you have to ask, and I don't, don't think you have to like know this for the exam. I won't have a section 96 courts question on the exam. Um, but the, the test is, you ask whether historically the courts have jurisdiction over the subject matter in 1867. Then consider whether this area, this um, power has a truly judicial character and whether in the institutional context of the legislative scheme, the power is exercised, is still in the nature of a Section 96 court, or whether it's been transformed, that's ancillary or necessarily incidental to, the, to a different legislative goal. It's a mouthful, but basically what you're saying is, hey, 1890 or 1867, was this part of the courts? Okay. Is this something that's truly a judicial function, like not something that was kind of extraneously involved with the courts? Yes. Is this still something that has a judicial character? It's not been kind of transformed into something purely administrative and different from what we would have thought of in 1867? If no, 
then you may have to stay within the judiciary. You may not be able to delegate. So I don't want you to worry about the nuance of that. I see that as a constitutional law question, not an admin law question. I do want you to understand that there is a constitutional limit on how much delegation can happen. And it's when you run into this problem of eroding the jurisdiction of the superior courts. And that came up in the administrative context recently with the Civil Resolution Tribunal, an administrative tribunal. All right, I'd race through that. Thank you for paying attention. Um, we could have done two class on delegation easily. Yeah. Uh, yes, I, I think that's right. It would be an adjudicated function that's given, but the fundamental problem is a limit on delegation. 